Lord, as we look in the scriptures this morning, help each of us take away those things that you want for us, no more and no less. If you saw the paper yesterday morning, the mayor's prayer luncheon is coming up, or prayer breakfast, I forget what it is. Anyway, it's the owner of Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy, is talking about their business and their personal lives. I thought this was interesting He said he and his father didn't go to business school. They learned their business framework from the Bible. Chick-fil-A is a a company that um, consciously does not open on Sunday. They operate 52 days a year less than most of their competitors, and yet this, this article says remarkably, individual stores and corporate, they have continued to grow every year for 38 years in a row even though they're working less than other companies. Hobby Lobby, I believe, does the same thing, close specifically on Sunday because they're giving employees the opportunity to go to church and spend that day, as would have been customary in the past, with their families. They're operating their business on a biblical principle, and as you look at the success of their business, you'd have to say, boy, God has blessed that. This morning we're in a passage, and I confess I was going to bypass this altogether because we've talked about giving in Malachi 1, uh, related to giving your best. you remember the nation was bringing deficient animals to their sacrifice? You know, the truth is I, I got to looking in this passage, and there was so much. We're just, we're just scratching the surface on this topic in Malachi 3 this morning. And you remember in the context of this whole series through Malachi that we wanted to be intentional about living our lives counterculture, going against the stream of the culture around us. If our culture is anything, it is materialistic. We swim in a materialistic culture. We have more wealth, more physical things, more stuff that we can lay our hands on than any culture at any time in history, arguably around the world today as well. We're swimming in a sea of what we could call idolatry, the idolatry of materialism and that's what Malachi addresses in Malachi 3 and if if we want to talk about as we are living counterculture against a sea of materialism Malachi 3 is a great place to start we're just in verses 7 through 12 this morning if you don't know any passage out of Malachi this might be a passage you've heard because it's used routinely in in Christian churches uh, when the issue of giving comes up I think the take on on it that we'll look at this morning is a little different probably than most of what you've heard in the past. And again, for time constraints, we are only highlighting what I think are the most significant things in this. The application related to uh, looking up more specifically on giving, that'll be your homework to carry on uh, elsewhere. Malachi 3, 7 through 12, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God's answer, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts, 
All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. God continues this courtroom type setting in which he brings up another indictment against his people. And remember, they're in a covenant with him. You remember the covenant that they live under? God says, if you will do this, then I will do this. If you'll obey, I will bless. This failure here is in the area of giving. God says they're robbing him because they're not tithing. They're not giving him the offerings that they were supposed to, that they were bound to under the law of Moses, under the old covenant under which they lived. You guys know a tithe just means a tenth, 10%. When Jacob left Palestine for Haran, do you remember what he said to God? If you'll bless me, I'll give you a tenth. Do you remember when Abraham defeated the kings that had uh, defeated Sodom and Gomorrah? He gave a tenth. Abraham did to Melchizedek, God's priest. A tenth in the ancient world was a, a pretty standard value by which someone showed a submission to another, or in this case, in which the Jewish nation was supposed to honor God with a tenth. That was the tithe. Now, remember, all these things we've looked at already in Malachi, when God brings a charge, it's not as if there should be any ignorance on the part of the nation, because they're living under the covenant. So when he says you're not doing something, it's something they knew already they were supposed to do. Related to tithing, listen to this. this is, we could go on and on out of the law about this, but just a couple of verses. Leviticus 27, God said, All the tithe or the tenth of the land, of the seed of the land, of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Ten percent of the increase of the land, God says, belongs to me. It's holy, that means it's set apart for my use. Ten percent. For every tenth part of the herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. If you had animals in your herds and you numbered them each year, you ran them through a gate, you counted them with your rod, and every tenth one, that belonged to God, 10%. So the Jews knew, there are many, many more verses we could look at, but just basically God says, 10% of your annual increase is mine whether it's an animal, whether it's grain, fruit trees, olives, whatever, 10% is to come to me directly. So they knew this, and they weren't doing it, and that's what God's indicting them for here. God says in this conditional covenant he's in with them, because you are refusing to obey in tithing and offerings, I am cursing you. This is pretty strong language, by the way, isn't it? God says, I'm cursing you. Verse 8, you're robbing me. So, verse 9, I've cursed with a curse because you're robbing me. He says, if you will turn around, I'll open the windows of heaven. I'll rebuke the devourer. I'll stop the curse if you'll obey. If you'll do what you're supposed to, I will bless. But right now, you're in disobedience and I'm cursing you. Uh, Haggai is a passage that is, uh, sounds very much like this. And you remember we said that the period of Ezra and Nehemiah, when Israel came back from Babylon to Israel and they were rebuilding the city and the temple, these same issues were all addressed just a generation earlier. Haggai was part of that earlier generation. Listen to this. Sometimes I feel like this when uh, these verses, when it talks about the littleness. But uh, Haggai 1 verse 6 God told them a generation earlier, you've sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. 
You put on clothing, but you're not warm enough. You earn wages to put into a purse with holes. Have you ever felt like that? No matter how much I make, it's all gone. It evaporates. It's dust. God says, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. Why? God says, I blow it away. This is in Haggai. Why? Because my house, which lies desolate, while each one of you runs to his own house. God says, I called for a drought. When they came back, instead of putting God first, they started building their own houses. And they left the temple uncompleted. And so God says, you're not honoring me. You're not putting me and my things first. And so I have brought a drought. And I have blown your wealth away. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, you're cursed. You're not blessed. And it's because you haven't put me and my things first. So because Israel was not keeping their part of this conditional covenant, God was cursing them. Not just letting bad things happen. He was actively opposing them. This is not a position you want to be in with God. A question arises, why does God care about this tithing? Why did God put this in the law? There's quite a bit to read in the law. Two verses I've read. There's chapters about this. Why did God care about this tithing thing? Why did he care about offerings? What does God get out of it? First, it's important to remember, God does not need anything. You and I cannot give God, in any real sense, anything. The earth and everything it contains is his. So there's no true sense in which we give God anything. In fact, in Psalm 50, Uh, This is a psalm of complaint, and it echoes, in fact, it starts with a courtroom indictment, just like Malachi does, but God says, I don't want your young bulls, I don't want the goats of your offerings. Why? Because every beast of the forest is mine. Everything that moves in the field is mine. The world is mine, and everything it contains. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's, and all it contains. God does not need anything you and I give him. And the Jews weren't giving anything to God that God needed. It's not as if God's a beggar who's pleading for your help and mine or for help from the Jews in their day. God doesn't need anything. So when you enter this story or this dilemma or the question, what's really at work here, you need to remember the giving, the tithing, is not for God's benefit. It is for Israel's benefit. This does not benefit God. It benefits the people who are giving. It benefits Israel. Now, while God didn't need any of this giving, if they never gave a bull or a goat or an olive or anything, it would make no difference to God, but it would make a difference to God's representatives. That is, the folks who are supposed to work in the temple. Numbers 18 says, To the sons of Levi I have given all the tithe in Israel, for an inheritance in return for their service, which they performed, the service of the tent of meeting. As you know, God required the descendants of Levi to serve him at the temple. So if they were serving in the temple, they weren't plowing fields, they weren't practicing trades. So if they were going to have something to live on and provide for their families to live on, it would have to be from these tithes and offerings that God's talking about here. So God didn't need them, but his representatives did. In Nehemiah's day, again, this was a key issue at that same point too. Listen to what Nehemiah says. 
I discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, the oil into the storehouses. In Nehemiah's day, the priests had gone to the temple to serve, and the people weren't giving. So the priests, this didn't take long to figure out. They need to go home because they've got to work. They've got to tend their own animals, plow their own fields, practice their own trades, because they've got to provide for their own family. So Nehemiah comes and the temple's abandoned because there was no giving. So on one hand, God doesn't need the giving, doesn't help him a bit. It all belongs to him anyway. But on the other hand, he required it because it provided for the folks who worked in the temple. And remember that the priest's job was to represent God to the nation. They spoke for God to the nation. It was also to represent the nation to God. I think I'm getting that right. The priest represented the nation to God and represented God to the nation. And so they were sustained by this giving. But the third element of this, and and by far, in my mind, the most important thing um, to realize is that this giving had more to do with what was inherently the most important thing the nation needed to remember. Remember back in chapter 1 when God starts this whole thing off talking to Israel, his covenant people, about their failures? Do you remember the first failure, the one we said from which everything else came? It's that they had lost their love for God. They lost their love for God. And so all these failures came from a loss of love. You remember when God institutes this covenant that he's reminding them about what the first thing he says when God comes down on Sinai and gives Moses the ten words? What's the first word? Exodus 20, verse 2, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God says the first commandment from the law of Moses, God comes down on Sinai, is I'm God. There are no others, have no other gods before me. God says, in essence, I am to be above anything, anyone else that you might revere or take affection or delight in. I am to be head and shoulders above everyone and everything else. When Jesus is asked the question by the Pharisees in the New Testament, what's the great commandment? He says, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The failure to give, like all the other failures, goes back to a failure to love God. This led to what I think the true problem for Israel was here. Do you remember what the second commandment is there on Sinai in Exodus 20? I am the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. And then, verse 4, make for yourself no idol. Don't make a likeness of what's in heaven above or on earth beneath and the water under the earth. Don't worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, you know at this point, Israel doesn't make statues. They don't make idols, that kind of idol, right? The nations did, and Israel actually had in their history. You remember Israel, when the nation divided, Israel in the north had their their, uh, statue, the bull at uh, Samaria. And, of course, in the wilderness, Aaron had made the... So they had some history of this, but this isn't what was going on here. When they came back from Babylon, as far as any records we know, Israel never again capitulated to that kind of idolatry, making a statue and bowing down to it. But this is my thought. Israel now, they don't have a statue, but they're like us. Their, Their idol was materialism. Their idol was stuff. 
they were breaking the second commandment of no idol because they were not obeying the first commandment to love God. And so I think this issue, God's bringing them back to this thing of giving and tithing, not because he needs it, but because it's for their benefit to bring them back to God himself and to free them from idols, to free them from idolatry. I think that their desire for, as well as their possessions themselves, were the idols. You know, if you have a lot of money, you might be tempted to think, I've made an idol out of my wealth. But then if you don't have much wealth, you say, well, uh, wealth isn't my idol because I don't have any. But you can be dirt poor and materialism still be your idol because it's what you're wanting, it's what you're putting, it's the desire you're putting above God himself. So I think the real issue here is idolatry, a lack of love for God, which led to the idolatry of materialism. You remember that um, besides giving a tenth, Israel was required to give the first part uh, do you remember the feast of ingathering? Before the crops of the nation would be gathered, the priests would go out and they would take a sickle and they would harvest the first fruits and then they would come and present that before God. And it was a reminder, it was a reminder to the nation that everything they were going to take in was God's. They took the very first part and they offered it to God. And then they also took the 10%. They took every tenth of their increase and gave it to God as well. But if you ask the, the question, why is this important and how does this bind my heart or loose my heart? What's at play here? Somehow this all comes down to this issue of faith and trust in God. Do you remember if you go back in Genesis to the story of Eve in the garden, God told her, hey, do things my way. Life is good. You'll have everything you need. And Satan comes up and says, you know, you really want this apple from this tree or you want the fruit of this tree because you're missing out on something. There's something better that you could get if only you'd take this for yourself. And from then on, right through Revelation 21, when it describes people who are outside the New Jerusalem, outside heaven, it says the unbelieving are there. That is, throughout history, from the garden through the end of the Bible, this issue about will I love God and will I trust God is the key theme. Will I love God and will I trust God? That's the theme. And so in all of these occasions specifically related to giving what we do with our wealth or with our possessions. It has to do with, do I love God and will I trust him? Let me give you a couple of examples. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt and he brings them around the wilderness and they're getting ready to go across the Jordan and take the land, the first part of the land. You remember Abraham was promised the land. All he ever had was a grave. Israel's never inherited the land God promised them, but they're about to. But before God brings them in and gives them the promised land, he says this, the first part of the promised land is mine. Do you remember what it is, where it is? The city of Jericho. What does God tell Israel about Jericho? You're to take nothing out of it. The city is under a ban. It's devoted to destruction. And this is my thought. This is my take on this. No different than God saying to a family or a person, you take that whole burnt offering, you put it on the altar, and it's consumed entirely for me. Jericho was a whole burnt offering. God says, it's mine. So that when the nation came in, before they took possession of anything, 
the first part of the land of promise God took. He said, don't you take it. That's mine. The first part is mine. And do you remember Achan stole the gold and the treasure that he wanted out of Jericho. And when he stole it, he was in essence saying, God, I place my desire for the gold and the treasure above you. And God, I'm not going to obey you because there's something that I want that you're withholding from me. And I don't trust you to fulfill my needs, my hopes, and my dreams. So I'm going to reach out and take it for myself. When Israel took Jericho and apart from Achan, when they gave the whole thing to God, they were saying, God, we recognize you're God and we're not. You own everything. Everything we get is a gift from you. All our needs, all our hopes, all our dreams, we rest in your hands. And as a symbol of that, we give you all of this first thing we would otherwise be free to enjoy. And then God gives them the rest of the land. But Jericho, he says, is not yours. It's mine. Think about Abraham. Do you remember Abraham was given a promise of a son? And and you remember he waits 25 years. He's an old man before God comes back and says, okay, it's time to fulfill that promise. But God had given Abraham all these promises about kings coming from him and nations and all this land and all this blessing that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And then he finds out he's an old man with no son. And then God comes and says, okay, here he is. And he has this bit of laughter in his life. Isaac is born. Now just imagine that you're Abraham. What do you think your temptation would be? You know that all your future hopes and dreams are bound up in this frail little baby. And then in this young kid who falls and skins his knees and maybe he bleeds from an injury and you're thinking all my hopes and dreams for posterity and for blessing on the earth are tied up in this kid that could be hurt or could be killed. And where would I be? And what would our temptation be? It would be to make an idol out of our son. And we get anxious and we get worried and we try and preserve him from everything around us to, to keep him from hurt because in him we see our hopes and our dreams. And so what does God say to Abraham? Take your son, the son that you love, and you give him to me on this mountain as an offering. And you know, the text just says he went and did it. You know, now if we're there, we're thinking psychologically, man, what in the world is going on? And what did he tell his wife? And what did he tell his son? And did Isaac struggle? And what went through Abraham's heart and mind? The New Testament has some texts on this, of course. But you see what's going on. God says, you take that son that I know you're tempted to make an idol out of, and you're going to give him back to me in death on this mountain. And Abraham does. He goes through, as you know, he raises the knife to slay a son to obey God's command. And then God gives him back. What's the point? Why does God do this? Why does he put Abraham and Sarah and Isaac through this? You know, if we want pictures of Christ, we've got them in the offerings and in other places. In the Old Testament, I mean, they're there. Christ appears in other ways. Why this? I think this is the deal. God requires Abraham to give him Isaac, this son that he might otherwise idolize and live in fear and dread of his harm. And he gives him back as a gift. So now imagine Abraham. What's Abraham's take after this? 
Now, instead of Isaac being his hope and his dream, God is. Abraham has suffered the loss of Isaac because he willingly took him up, bound him, put him on the altar, and raised the knife. As far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac was dead. So now, because Abraham has already given up his hold on Isaac, God is free to give him back, and now Abraham can enjoy Isaac as his son, but not as an idol. And now Abraham can trust freely, trust God for his future, not his son. Do you see how this frees Abraham? It frees him. It frees him from an idol. It frees him from worry and stress and anxiety. In God's economy, typically, you'll find this if you haven't already, that the things you're most free to enjoy are the things you've given away. The things you're most free to enjoy are the things you have given away. Specifically here, given back to God. The things you hold on to most tightly tend to be the idols in your life that God will say at some point in some way, give that to me, give it back to me. This has nothing to do with God being a stingy God. You know, he's created us to bless us, to have fellowship with us. He's not stingy. Everything we have is because he's bountiful and generous and has given it to us. In fact, if you think about the future of Christians, God takes creatures, sinful creatures who spit in his eye. He redeems them at his own cost. And then he says, and by the way, in the future, I'm going to let you rule the universe with me. So there's no thought here that God is stingy or tight-fisted or small-minded. This was always for the benefit of the people that were doing the giving because it freed them from idolatry. It reminded them that God was God, their child wasn't God, their money wasn't God, the fields aren't God, the olive groves aren't God. God is God. And so when I give him those things, he's free to give them back because they're no longer idols to me. Now they're gifts from God that I can enjoy appropriately without distorting them by somehow setting my heart on them or making them the seat of my affections. When God required Israel to tithe and to give, to give their first and the tenth part, he was freeing them from idolatry. And when those Jewish families took that first, you know, every animal that bore the first time, that anim- they couldn't keep that. That had to be given to God. But when they gave that first calf from that heifer to God, it was a statement of trust that said, Lord, I acknowledge your ownership. I acknowledge that you're God. I give you the first of the increase of this animal because I know you're going to take care of all the rest of my needs. So they give the first, they give the tenth, and in doing so, they were freeing their own hearts from idolatry. And they were left free to love God and receive the blessings he wanted them to have anyway. Remember, for Israel under the law, if they gave, God was free to bless. But if they didn't, they were cursed. And the curse even, it's not as if God's being chintzy there either. The curse was supposed to be kind of this this thorny whip. You know, you get uncomfortable enough or hungry enough, cold enough, whatever, and you say, Lord, what gives? And God says, I want your heart. You give to me first, you give me the tenth, and I'll bless you. And I love this. uh, He says he'll open the windows of heaven. He'll pour out a blessing on them. It says, they'll be called the delightful land. I think you guys sang a song last week. 
about Psalm 78. Do you remember that in the wilderness when there was no provision and Israel said, God, how are you going to feed us? Do you remember what he did? He rained food from heaven. Literally. He rained manna from heaven. And do you remember also he rained birds from heaven? Literally. When the Jews heard this, they're thinking of Israel in the wilderness. And when they looked around them and could see no provision whatsoever, the desert, no food, no water, God says, you know what, I'll just open a window in heaven and I'll send something down. And they would remember he's done it before. So he tells them here, you give, you honor me first. You take your hopes and desires for the future, for your provision, for your family, for your welfare, and you pin them on me, not on yourselves. They could look back in their history and remember when God did exactly that, rain down their provision from heaven. Jesus says this in the New Testament, give and it will be given to you. And then I love this. They'll pour it into your lap. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. That's the thought here. Has nothing to do with God not wanting them to enjoy good things. Because he does. He's that kind of God. He's good. He's benevolent. He's bountiful. He's merciful. But he wants to do so in a way that's actually a blessing and not a curse. Have you ever seen a family, I'm sure there are none of them here, who spoil their children in such a way that when the child gets one thing, he only wants more? Sometimes this might happen at Christmas. If your child knows there's 10 presents under the tree, they go through the first and what do they do? Pitch it, go for the second, pitch it, go for the third. Because their heart is set on the stuff. You know, good parents don't spoil their children. They're free to bless their kids like God is here, but they don't spoil them. And this is the deal. You ask yourself this. Can my child handle what I want to give them? Will this actually be a blessing to my child or will it curse them? Will they set their heart and their affections on the thing instead of their relationship with me as a parent? Our hearts easily go to things, stuff. Go into into any one of our houses today, you know what I'll bet? They're all filled with stuff. We collect stuff. We're comfortable with stuff. Our closets are full. Our basements are full. Our attics are full. You know, it's a pain to move because you move all the stuff. And you have garage sales in which you get rid of your stuff and you go to someone else's garage sale and you buy their stuff. We just materially, we have oodles and oodles and oodles of stuff. And it's easy for us to set our heart and our affections on those things. And God says, he wants to bless us with good things. But like a wise parent, he's not going to give us things that will turn our heart from him. And as you know, the human heart cannot be satisfied with things. Cannot be satisfied. So if you set your affections on things, you only want more. Because that thing that you thought would satisfy at some point, it doesn't. And after a while, you know that. And so you look for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Only God can satisfy our heart. So I think the bottom line on this giving and this tithing in Malachi has nothing to do with God's need, doesn't need anything. And I would even say secondarily, only it has to do with those who served in the tabernacle and the temple being provided for. That was important. The biggest deal is God says, I want your hearts. And I don't want to give you abundance if that abundance turns your heart 
from me. That would not be in their well best interest, would not be in our best interest. God wants to give us himself. Then he's free to give us stuff, but it's not idols. We're free from materialism because he has our hearts. In this area of, uh, of giving and materialism, etc., there's, uh, there's tons and tons and tons we could say, but let me close with these four thoughts, just homework, things to think about. The first is this. We live in a materialistic culture. We live in a culture which does bow idolatrously to the gods of materialism. We have to assume, I think we should come into this assuming that we are more given to materialism than we know. That is, if, if you hear this this morning and you think I'm not materialistic, I suspect you're more materialistic than you think. We live in a culture which is materialistic, and my suspicion is for each of us, we tend to be more materialistic than we're aware of. So I think we need to start with that. The second thing would be this. Because of the culture that we live in, we are bombarded with the message day in and day out that stuff is God. That stuff is God. That materialism is king. You know, advertising is everywhere. You and I, we don't get up, we don't live a day on this earth that we don't see that we're not subject to advertising. And that's somebody trying to tell you to buy their stuff. That's what advertising is. So your minds and mine, we are bombarded every day in our culture by messages that say we need this. Our life would be bigger, better, happier with it if we had the bigger screen TV or the newer, faster computer or the shinier car or the bigger house or the better vacation or the more substantial investment portfolio, whatever it is. You and I live in a culture that worships materialism. And so it's selling us this every day. So your mind is being bombarded with it. So we start, I think, assuming we're more materialistic than we think. And the second is that we're being bombarded with the sales of materialism every day too. This is just another reason why if you're not in the scriptures daily, you're losing ground because your mind is taking in somebody else's sales pitch, somebody else's view of reality and what's important. So if you're not in the scriptures daily, you're not counteracting the influence of the culture on your mind. You're, you, whether you know it or not, to some level, in some ways, you're buying in to the messages of the culture around you. The third thing is this. Your test and my test of how material I am, kind of compared to uh, God, am I God-centered, am I material-centered? Am I loving God and being blessed by the stuff he gives me, or am I worshiping the stuff he gives me, is this. It's not what you do with greater wealth or more stuff later that reveals your heart and where you're at on this. It's what you're doing right now. Are you with me on this? You know, many times we'll say, Lord, if you'd give me a little bit more money, I'd give more. It, it misses the point. The point is, what do you and I do with our stuff now, right now? Are we open? You, we keep it. Yeah, Nicholas, I understand. Yeah, we keep it. We keep the stuff. What do we do with it right now? That's the window into the soul. That tells us where we're really at. Not what would we do with more, with better, in the future, down the road. You know the old story about the farmer, you know. Well, the, the guy at the church says, you know, if you had 100 cows, would you give, I don't know, 10 to God? Oh, yeah. 
If you had 50 chickens, would you give five to God? Oh, yeah. If you had two pigs, would you give one to God? And he says, that's not fair. You know I have two pigs. You know, that's the thing. It's not what you do in the future. It's what you do with what you've got now. That's the indication. Are we open-handed? Are we generous right now with what we've got? Are we open-handed and generous trusting that God will meet our needs, that he's the source of our supply and not our own power and our own hand? Your view, the indication of how material or how free we are from materialism, I'm convinced, is reflected in what we do with what we've got right now. The fourth thing is this. It's just to give. It's to give. I'm not going into this issue uh, tithing um, just briefly. I don't believe the New Testament teaches tithing, and I disagree with many, many Christian teachers on this. It's an Old Testament, Old Covenant amount. I would say this, though. If you look in the New Testament, the verse I didn't finish the end of Luke 6.38, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. If you look in the New Testament, it talks about giving. It does say, 1 Corinthians 16, the the early church gave first on the first day of the week. It it was behind this principle about giving to God from your first. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talk about giving. It says, uh, not under compulsion with the thought being, I don't give because I think somebody's looking over my shoulder. I don't give because, but I'm really bitter about it. But I give as I've determined between the Lord and I, or as my wife or my husband and I have prayed about it. We've given with purpose. We've thought about it. We've prayed about it. We're not just doing it absent-mindedly. When people make pleas to me for money on the spur of the moment, I, I try never to give, almost never, because it's not with purpose, because I haven't thought about it. There's a few exceptions, but there are exceptions. To give with purpose, to give generously, cheerfully, so this, these themes are reiterated. If you give 10%, that's great. In fact, I think if you're a serious Christian, frankly, I don't think you're a serious Christian unless you give generously. It just doesn't. Christ-likeness means generosity. So give. Give generously, cheerfully, joyfully, purposefully. Do give. And I know there's students in here. You know what? You give what you have, not what you don't have. If you are a student living on student loans, you don't have finances to give. You don't. God doesn't say go in debt to give. I was approached by a guy one time who wanted to give after a church meeting, an appeal for giving. He wanted to borrow money from me to give. I told him 2 Corinthians says it's acceptable according to what a person has, not what they don't have. You can give to God what you have. If you don't have an increase in finances to give, give God what you have. You've got time. You can help. You can pray. There's all kinds of ways we can give, not just financial. But give to God what you've got. And if that's time, give your time generously, cheerfully, purposefully. You know, in closing, there's no record of Israel ever doing this. Did you know that? The reason I say that is this. There's no record in history of Israel experiencing this kind of bounty and blessing. It doesn't exist. I don't think they ever did. I don't think they ever did. I think as a nation, even though they didn't bow to statues, I think materialism remained at the top of the heap of their idols. And if you remember in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, what were they after? The religious leaders? They were after respect in the public places. They were after the money that being attached to the priesthood could bring. Remember the money changers in the temple courts. 
Some things don't change. You know, I think you and I have a great opportunity as Christians today to say to God, Lord, we love you. We put you first. We do that because we give. We give away freely. We give from the first. We give cheerfully. We give purposefully, prayerfully. And when we do, we acknowledge you're God. It's all yours anyway. And we entrust our hopes for our own provision and for our hopes and dreams on you. Then God is free to say, great. Now I'm free to bless you with more of whatever it is. Not stingy, generous and open-handed, but not willing to help us make idols out of stuff. So to live life counterculture and to love God, I'm convinced out of Malachi 3, it means giving to God first, giving generously, and then pinning our hopes for our needs and our wants on Him. Then we're free from idolatry, free to love Him, and free to enjoy the blessings He wants to give us anyway. Let's pray. Lord, if there's ever any thought that you weren't generous, it's taken away in the gift of your Son for this sinful world. Lord, it's not just that you gave your best, but you gave it for sinful people like us. Lord, there's no greater proof that you love us and desire to bless us. And now, being reconciled to you, being your own children, Lord, I know even more so that you desire to bless us. And Father, help us to wisely put you first by giving, not allowing the things that we accumulate, possessions or wealth or stature, whatever it might be, Lord, in any way, see those as a substitute for you. Lord, help us to see you as king over all, as the most desirable object or person for our heart. Help us not shrink our hearts, Lord, to the size of TVs and iPods. Lord, help us to enlarge our hearts by laying hold more and more of the eternal, omnipotent God. Father, help us to love you and display that love in our generosity and in our giving. And in doing so, Lord, we thank you that you're free to bless us in all the ways you want to. And and Lord, more than blessing in this life, I know our greatest riches, our greatest treasure are yet to come when we see you face to face and join with you in eternity. And until that day, Lord, we say again, thanks for your provision. We entrust ourselves, our hopes, our dreams, our needs, and our cares to you. In Jesus' name, amen.